0: hello you wonderful being out there i really appreciate you being here with me and engaging this is the today dreamer podcast where we cultivate the practice of presence together by having conversations and tuning into and sharing wisdom feeling into the space that arises among two beings and kind of seeing where that leads us in terms of allowing us to deepen our own participation in the emergent uh, collective world story that's continually unfolding in every moment. So what does it look like to practice presence? And what does it feel like to deeply sink into the moment? And why would we even do such a thing? These are the kinds of questions... That I explore into with today's guest, Miles Neal. I'll tell you about Miles a little bit in a moment, but first of all, I wanted to extend out my heartfelt gratitude to a couple of beautiful humans that have decided to reach out and get in touch with me. So Ivana T, the Young Yogi on Instagram, McKee Shaw, and JB. I really appreciate your recent messages. And I just wanted to say thank you. I appreciate you're reaching out, and I'm just kind of I feel blessed that you're getting something out of the show and um, that it's kind of touched you in a, in a space um, so much so that you've decided to reach out. If anyone else out there feels like getting in touch, I would love to hear from you. If you're enjoying the show, if you've got recommendations, if there's something that you would like to say, um, please get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you. I'm hoping to build more and more of a community and offer more to you guys in terms of helping you on this path that we're on together um, as I'm learning and growing. Uh, I want to contribute as much of that um, um, as much of that to you as I can. So uh, let's get into it. so I'll tell you a little bit about miles real quickly before we kind of move on with the conversation. So Dr. Miles Neal is a contemplative psychotherapist based in New York and is one of the leading voices of the current generation of Buddhist teachers. Miles coined the term McMindfulness to address the problem we have in society of cherry-picking teachings from ancient, mostly threatened wisdom cultures and mass-marketing them as consumerist goods. So, um, I'll tell you a little bit more about Miles' book, actually, before we move on so his his book gradual awakening provides a practical training manual of 30 ancient contemplative insights and meditative practices drawn from the tibetan buddhist path he makes it accessible for the western mind while at the same time staying true to ancient teachings and practices he's also got another book uh, which i want to share with you as well and this is one that really really uh, resonated with me his other book is advances in contemplative psychotherapy accelerating healing and transformation so he co-wrote this book and co-edited it with joseph Luizo and emily j wolf so uh, let's get into this conversation with miles uh, but again thank you for being here in this present moment in your body you know with me and with miles and with everyone else listening we're here and we're all together beyond space and time. I think beyond hope. I'm I'm quite confident that this one will really help you on your process of self-healing, uh, transformation and participation in everything that's going on. So uh, what I tend to do before the episodes is just kind of take a breath with the guests and invite everyone listening to do the same just because of all the kind of stuff that we just went through with the technical side of things—it's nice to kind of, I guess, um, give people an opportunity to pause as as well as ourselves before we kind of um, drop into the space. Would that be something we could do together now? Sure. All right. So there's an invitation for everyone out there to take a slow inhalation in through the nose. Pausing at the crescendo, noticing any subtleties of your experience before just as gracefully releasing on the way out. And we'll do this once or twice. The next exhalation, whenever that may be, feel free to gently synchronize the opening of your eyes, allowing more and more light in as we come into this moment together. Where to begin, where to begin? <laughs> I've got, um, I guess the theme for me that was arising um, through going um, on the journey of kind of exploring your work, Miles, um, there's so many places that I want to explore, um, but I guess the question of how do we become an effective spiritual being, in the world um (laughs) comes up and um yeah I, i i kind of i'm not sure if anything pops up in your heart or mind space when hearing that question maybe even what effective means would be an interesting place to explore but um yeah i'm just kind of just wanted to see or feel into if anything arose um as i kind of posed that um,
1: context is always important because I think spirituality has changed over time, over the course of history. Some some aspect of it is universal and then some aspect of, of this question is relative. And so, you know, <clears throat> the great existential questions or the archetypal questions are the same and then there is... Our responsibility to make it practical and applicable to the context and in that case it may be very personal to you your answer may be very personal to you it may be situational Um, and so you know part of my work right now is looking at the astrology of the of the current context of our lives and placing spirituality within that context and what was required is some challenge to the status quo of spirituality. Uh, There are, for example, there is a archetype in the astrology that we are currently in where it is moving away from hierarchy and towards decentralization. So what it might have meant to be a spiritual being 2,000 years ago might have included a lot of deference and devotion finding one's place within a hierarchy, placing one's feet, oneself at the feet of a master, for example, and aiming towards transcendence or an escape of the world. And that's just not where we are right now. We are no longer in that place. At least on those two specific points, now it is understanding that we are each our own, de- you know, devotion to our own intuition is what is necessary right now in this kind of archetype of decentralization, each of us has to be a master of our own world. We can ill afford to outsource our power to hierarchies, particularly the kinds of hierarchies around the, uh, around the planet right now that are misguiding us. Everybody is responsible now. There is a sense of a, an upsurge of the need for people to reclaim their power. Uh, so what does it mean to be an effective spiritual practitioner is in in regards to what I'm saying here in terms of the context of the astrology of the paradigm shift that we are amidst? It means that we we can no longer wait for others to do for us what we have to do for ourselves. And on the second point, the, a point about transcendence, if you look at all Axial Age philosophies, what one of the hallmarks about them was all of these great masters talking about another world, whether it be heaven or escape, some sort of escape from the world of suffering. But again, the archetype that we're heading into now is about integration or non-duality. Which means that samsara and nirvana are one. Which means there is no other place but here. Which means that the true spiritual pursuit is about full integration in our own bodies and full integration on this planet, in this world. So we can't we can't escape the world. We're not we're not going to escape the effects of our, the consequences of our actions. There is no ivory tower. There is no escape portal there is no other world than this and so the so our collective well-being as human beings as custodians of the planet as members of the creatures of this planet we have this is the realm in which our spirituality expresses ourselves so in terms of effectiveness being a good steward Being a responsible agent or player or, co- or co-creator is now part of the spiritual lexicon. Is now part of the spiritual pursuit, and anything anything other than this is a shirking of responsibility, and in a way, is sort of a child's game. Hmm. So, so those are at least two two comments to get started with. Uh, throw it back at you. Where is, where does the, where do you fall in the, in the conversation? And particularly with this question, like what, what relevance does it have for you personally in your life?
0: Yeah, I guess I'm just kind of working through that and I guess it's a continual exploration and something I'm, I'm coming back into kind of wondering and questioning, um, you know, at the moment i'm i'm looking into really really deeply questioning you know what i'm doing here and what you know how in what way i want i can serve and um almost trying to feel into that process at this at this moment and it's it's yeah it's run me through a range of kind of experiences and emotions and Um, a bit of a whirlwind to be honest and I'm just kind of in the middle of that process so I definitely don't have a definitive answer by any means but um, I did read the first chapter of uh, the book that you kind of co-edited and and co-wrote advances in contemplative psychotherapy uh, accelerating healing and transformation and it seemed like in a really beautiful way you laid out almost um i don't know like you pretty much laid out buddhism in uh, and in in a chapter in in a few pages and i was kind of blown away by that and um a thought that arised for me was how um you know probably everyone listening to this um and kind of everyone that, that comes across the kind of um buddhism in within itself has could probably fit into um could probably find themselves at you know somewhere within um that path and it and i guess something that was coming up as a possible offering for me might be to explore um that path so people could maybe find um find where they may sit within that or at least begin to um i don't know um see see kind of what they could um maybe it could open something up for people i'm not sure um but i i definitely don't want to be pushing anything onto anyone at the same time so i'm kind of cognizant of that but i just found it quite um it beautifully tied into what you just expressed and um yeah it was quite opening for me and i've definitely got some specific questions around certain elements of what you wrote um that i guess i'm still really um interested in from a personal level but i thought maybe as a sharing we could explore that um chapter if you're open to it unless you felt like going in a different direction and um yeah seeing if people could um tie tie in that sharing with what you've just shared um in regards to the context
1: yeah so that's i mean i'd love to share and You know, that book is a rare book, Advances in Condemnative Psychotherapy, was written in 2017. It's for a professional, largely a professional audience, and largely putting forth a, it's essentially creating a foundation to establish Buddhist psychotherapy as a viable, coherent map of mind and technique for clinical application. So it didn't get a lot of press and didn't get a lot of eyes on it, so thank you first and foremost for actually reading it. And for describing the chapter in the way that you did as a, a good distillation, I I really do appreciate it. That's a wonderful compliment to be able to synthesize Buddhism in such a way that you can capture it in just a few pages. So if it if anything in of this conversation sparks interest and people find their way to that chapter, uh, that's I have a, I have much gratitude for that. Now one of the aims of that chapter, in specific, and where it falls in the in the in the book, is to basically, I think it's called the Buddhist origi- origins of mindfulness. Now, what, what I what uh, what I have done in most of my career is to make sure that mainstream interest in meditation gives some respect to the tradition out of which meditation comes from, particularly the Buddhist kind of meditation that took off in the two thousands mindfulness meditation. Which got a lot of press, got a lot of people practicing, and has a lot of good clinical evidence for its effectiveness. And my attempt in that chapter is to very you know, clearly, as clearly, coherently as I can, present a rationale why it's important to understand the actual context and origins out of which mindfulness meditation has taken off in the West and what might be missing. And, you know, this is something that I have been known, I've coined a term called mic mindfulness, which which is a sort of hubristic, imperialistic, colonial offshoot of our Western mentality to extract the dazzling elements of the East and to discard the rest, rendering them and judging them as superficial or um, superfluous or, you know, superstitious, let's say, and to just take technologies. To take from yoga the asana, for example, or take out of Buddhism the meditative components, and to, and to, in a way, say, well, you know, we're scientifically minded people, and the rest of that stuff we can do without. That is, that is a sort of largely pervasive, perhaps unconscious uh, endeavor. It's sort of like our culture primes or prizes scientific reductionism. We don't need the rest of the hocus pocus. We don't need reincarnation. We don't need Buddhist philosophy. We don't need any rituals. We don't need any deities. We don't need any prayers. None of that is relevant to us. What's relevant to us is to practice a technique of closing our eyes, counting our breaths, calming down, putting an EEG monitor on the brain, watching the blood pressure decrease, watching the respiration decrease. And over the course of eight or 10 weeks, seeing how depression decreases and anxiety decreases, then we, we have a sign of a kind of conviction or confidence that something is happening. And what my attempt is to draw attention to is that that kind of pervasive reductionism has a shadow. In other words, our, our, our cultural assumptions based in scientism, based in the dogma, the rigid dogma of scientism, the hubris of scientism, not scientific methodologies, but scientism as a new religion that only believes in the five senses, that has discarded any connection to the realm of spirit, any, con- any connection to the non-quantifiable, that itself is, has become a very dangerous set of principles and assumptions that is in part related to the demise of our civilization. In other words, if we look at things like the ecological destruction, the economic divide, the geopolitical instability, these things are all not uh, unrelated and they have a central origin in human blindness. The, the, The way that we don't see the world clearly we don't see each other clearly. We don't see our interdependence. We don't see the significance of the causes of our actions over the long haul. We are destroying ourselves as a result of the same kind of blindness that underpins our wish to go to other countries, strip them of their uh, jewels, their crown jewels, and claim them for our own. And while it's true it's true that so many millions of people benefited from mindfulness as a result of this simplification or reductionism extraction it's also true that there is actually so much more to benefit and gain if we can understand the context out of which mindfulness comes from in other words we've actually short changed ourselves the things that we left behind actually have so much inherent value if we could only adjust our attitude slightly to see their significance in context. And so one of the things I like to say is that we have mindfulness in its original context is for liberation, human liberation. Whereas mindfulness in its most secular context, its most narrow and um, you know ex- ex- extracted or essentialized context is stress reduction. And so the the chapter lays out a rationale to understand the loss of this extraction process and to gain an appreciation for what it is that mindfulness is trying to do in its original context and to then lay out, very simply, the other pillars that are, that are involved in the Buddhist tradition. And if it's just if it comes down to a language game, uh, my colleagues who wrote that book, we are attempting to find a language that allows people access to the whole tradition so that they see that it's not something to be skeptical or cynical of, but that actually it makes perfect sense. Buddhism has always been rational, scientific. It has been critical. Uh, it, it, it primes itself on a tra- as a tradition of education not of, of, of metaphysical speculation and belief. And so there's, there's really no need to be so suspicious and, and, and to practice this kind of um, division, this false division or extraction. Actually, it's just if there was the right language, we could invite people into a process of understanding and appreciating all that there is to gain from the full tradition. And so what are these other things? And I'll stop there. I'll, I'll just earmark it there, that the three pillars that I'm talking about in this chapter are the are the two sister uh, disciplines that come together with the mindfulness or meditative tradition. One being the tradition of wisdom or insight, and the other tradition of of ethics or virtue. These are th- these are considered three pillars that are essential to the heart of Buddhism. I'm going to leave it right there to see where you where you land if you have any further questions or comment uh,
0: not really i kind of I love that we're kind of beginning towards the end of the chapter and and you've 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 kind of highlighted a beautiful kind of or you've created like a bit of a primer <laughs> for this exploration i was, i I guess a wondering I had was if I could maybe read one of the final paragraphs of the chapter that really kind of took me aback and then and then i can maybe throw it back in your court to continue if that's okay yeah please okay so this this really blew my mind just just the way you captured this in we were talking about within a few pages but this was distilled within like a paragraph and it I was kind of like wow like I, I can't believe someone's sharing this in words and and I, like i just got really pulled in um when i read this so uh, i'll share it now so it's in some The ways in which we human beings think speak and act in relation to immediate circumstances appears to have specific enduring consequences on perceptions and subjective experience in successive moments as well as subtle impacts on other individuals development now and into the future the thrust of karma theory alerts us the incredible primacy of mind specifically the power of intentional actions in determining our future existence this can inspire both a deep sense of responsibility for our actions as well as a sense of empowered agency for our evolution cultivating a greater appreciation for ethical and evolutionary agency need not require blind faith in either religious dogmas or in materialism As the Buddha reminded his students, it is up to each of us to critically evaluate how mind influences behavior and experience over time, and to develop a coherent narrative that accounts for this process, knowing that all explanations are merely conventional descriptions of reality. When karma theory is understood as just one possible explanation for psychological causation, and permitted to inform mindfulness meditation practice it allows the meditator to guide the microscope of stabilized attention evoking insight and behavior change of habitually unconscious microcycles of self-defeating reaction that perpetuate distress by intentionally intervening to disrupt our cycles we can steer the future developmental course of consciousness i mean that's it just kind of it it's 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 almost like a reminder of of our own capability in a way and and potentiality um yeah, it just breathes life into that space in such a beautiful way um yeah, just yeah again, I wanted to thank you for writing writing all of that um yeah, so. thinking possibly you know we could go through the chapter i'm not sure if that's really what you want to do here but um that was an idea um and but there are so many other curiosities i have about your life in general but while we're on this track um yeah what kind of feels right to you from this point
1: well okay so let's like link that to the opening remark about context and what i said about each of us becoming more empowered. We can ill afford to outsource our power. And that ties in to karma theory, and it ties into what the heart of Buddhism is really suggesting to us, is that mind is incredibly powerful. Mind is, you can say, mind is God. And each of us are either a slave to the unconscious, habitual nature of mind, or we assume authorship and kingship or queenship of our own consciousness, and we steer the mothership of our own consciousness. And now consciousnesses merge into a collective field, and imagine what kind of collective field we could create with as many consciousnesses taking responsibility and ownership of their own power, and not allowing the latent, fragmented, traumatized aspects of of consciousness to dictate the terms of the collective field. So it's really it it is can it can be really just very simple. We are all incredibly capable. So capable that we could almost say without hubris that we have godlike capability. That mind and our thoughts which by the way in current science it's not even clear to current science that there is such thing as consciousness it doesn't really have a clear definition it isn't really given its due we know all about the biology we know all about the body the mind is this kind of separate thing it's amorphous it's non-quantifiable it's basically been reduced to the brain but from a buddhist perspective some 2500 years of psychology The mind is the single most powerful resource on the planet because it is both capable of complete destruction and complete liberation. You can't say that about many things. We could bring the planet to the brink of self-imposed destruction because of mind, greed, delusion, prejudice, aggression, and all the latent tendencies of mind. Or, personally and collectively, the mind could be purified, and its capability, its altruistic capability, and its insight capacity could be optimized. And that would have both an impact individually, and that would have an impact collectively, that would both have an impact temporally or in the immediate moment, and that would have a long-term impact on evolution, and so really the context is a reminder for each of us. There's no need to look around for authorities, for saviors, for deities. There's only, there, just look at your own mind. Just look, look at your own mind and take responsibility for your own mind. Then the other thing that's being said here is the, the short-sighted or short-term horizon. Of mind, to almost like in a Newtonian way for it to interact with billiard balls one to the next in the moment, also has to begin to become more quantum. We have to see that there's always an infinite horizon of possibilities, that there's always more than meets the eye, that it isn't just a linear one-to-one and then suddenly our thoughts and our actions just somehow disappear. That there is actually a a coherent science to understand and appreciate and become attuned to the fact that mind and energy and intentionality and words have incredibly long-term repercussions in both directions. So like most people in Western scientific reductionistic cultural milieu don't appreciate the power of their speech. They don't appreciate even the power of their thoughts. The only thing that we believe in is if I move a billiard block or I, I turn a knob on the, in a mechanistic way that we see cause and effect there. But we don't see for 15 minutes while you're meditating or while you're praying or you're trying to generate positive energy, that that's going to have any consequence whatsoever. And that's just a complete contradiction to the Buddhist science. Everything comes from energy. Everything comes from vibration. Everything comes from thought. And so this is like a call to not only claim our power, but also to understand our responsibility.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely feeling into what you're sharing here. Um yeah and i'm just kind of i guess i'm kind of if if people were to begin to um maybe look into this a bit further i'm sure they could kind of chase up this chapter and and find these kind of uh links but i'm I'm curious if you might be open to sharing kind of um these these 12 links that you mentioned in the chapter and um maybe seeing if um where we could go from that point because i'm i can't yeah i'm kind of wanting to maybe open things up a little bit more if people were were a bit more curious but weren't quite familiar with what they might be and maybe even it might be worth beginning with the four noble truths i don't know i'm just kind of feeling into this as well but everything you've shared i, I can totally feel into what you're saying and um i think yeah it, it feels like we've got a nice ground now <laughs> Yeah.
1: So let's look at it like from a case point of view or from a real life point of view. I can use maybe a little vignette that I often use. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just to make it relevant to people. Like, you know, most people are struggling, right? They have some level of discontent or relational dysfunction. Maybe they have some paranoia or some depression or some anxiety. We can just assume that that's growing actually on this planet right now, that the level of apathy and the level of depression is becoming more pronounced. So how does this actually relevant to just the everyday person who's looking for some refuge, looking for some salve? So mind is incredibly powerful is what we're saying. So you have somebody who Let's say uh, I use this case example all the time, a 19-year-old 19 girl, 19 girl comes and visits me many, many years ago. And she's often drinking, and she's got a lot of anger and aggression, and she's got a lot of uh, truancy in her university, which means she doesn't go to class. She acts out a lot. She self-sabotages. Occasionally she um, self-injures herself. She may cut herself or burn herself, and often, very often, she gets into relationships with men where it's so clear that they take advantage of her for the night or for the week and then discard her. And this is a reoccurring experience for her. And so this is the entry point, what's called in therapy the presenting problem, and then what happens is there's a period of discovery where the therapist and the client go on a little bit of a heroic journey into the unconscious to try to make sense using a mental map of how do we understand these symptoms? How do we make sense of these symptoms? So uh, a very you know, common starting point is do you go back to childhood, as far back as you can remember, and you're looking for potent archetypes, family systems, important events, critical crises, traumatic uh, situations. You're looking for things that have made an impression that might lead or, or make help you make sense in your assessment of, how we got here. So the existential questions are, you know, who am I? How did I get here? Where am I going? So you do some of this exploration, and it's clear that she has a dysfunctional mother who's an alcoholic, very, very critical, harsh, punitive, often chastising, emotionally unavailable. And on the other side, she's got a very, very passive father that sort of is a doormat, can't speak up, can't challenge the mom, can't rescue the daughter. And so we start to see that there are these imprints, significant imprints that have impacted her self-belief. And rather than go through the Buddha's 12 links of dependent origination, which is a both a cosmology and a psychology for accounting for the arising of suffering, how it's also another way of understanding how suffering is generated. We can just make it very simple and just use four of the links. There's perception, there's emotion, there is action, and there is consequence. Now let's look at perception. This girl, as a result of her history, has learned something about her own value. If you were to put it in a I statement, what might you imagine she says about I am as a result of her traumatizing history?
0: Yeah. I'm not enough.
1: Sure. I'm not enough. Anything else? I mean, there's no one right answer, right? So just, just riff on it a little.
0: I'm unworthy. Yep. Um, I'm confused about why this keeps happening to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm helpless. Mm -hmm. I'm hopeless.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, What might she have learned from a dad that didn't rescue her?
0: That she's not deserving of being rescued. Mm -hmm. That she, yeah, she's just kind of, She's, she's learned that no one's coming, mm. in a way. Um, I'm alone.
1: Mm. Okay, so let's imagine that that crystallizes in a very young primitive stage in her development as her self-belief and her expectation of the world. So we can call this a worldview. We can call it a view. It's a view of herself, and it's a view of the world. I'm unworthy, I'm unlovable, the world is dangerous. The world doesn't care. Mm. The world doesn't care about me. And it goes latent and buried in the archaeology of a human psyche, and it's very painful. So the psyche can't actually hold on to that. It just goes subterranean. Now, that, the links of dependent origination work like dominoes. So that perception also is followed by a set of emotions. So use some emotional adjectives and give me, some, give me a few adjectives to describe how that would make her feel, this litany of beliefs.
0: Just, just all the closing emotions, I guess. Um, she'd feel scared and um, uh, depressed or sad, um, feel unsure and confused and, and feel a bit overwhelmed. I guess um feel almost like she's constantly defeated um mm-hmm. and just really feeling like I'm just feeling into this and <laughs> it's making me feel all these emotions just right now you know like it's quite a heaviness mm-hmm. to be in that space mm-hmm. um a heaviness and I think it gets heavier when there's it doesn't seem like there's a way out mm mm-hmm. um and yeah that mostly sadness comes through and um yeah this these feelings of you know how you feel when you're abandoned um mm-hmm. just i just kind of picturing tears falling mm-hmm. and um like a rain of tears i guess over the heart
1: mm-hmm. So you're an empath, so you can feel into that, and that's good, and it makes you human. And even though it's a little bit of a dark thing, we'll get through this and we'll get to the other side, okay? <laughs> like you're setting this up so that we can see the benefit of taking on board a complete system. First we have to get through the, the bad news, the challenge, the dark night. So the you know, the reality is is that rejection is incredibly painful and the main the main underlying Emotion is shame. Mm. When you use words like unworthy or undeserving or not good enough, you're talking about core shame. Mm. The sense of identity is deficient. And what that feels like or with how that translates in an emotional plane is tremendous shame, which is unbearable and intolerable. And one of the ways in her personality that she manages core shame is with a lot of rage. There's a lot of anger at her mom. There's a lot of anger at her dad for both for different reasons, but this is it's easier to feel anger than it is to feel shame. And there may not be anywhere for that anger to go because who's listening? So then we go to the next link. First link is perception, second link is emotion, third one is behavior. So based on the little vignette that I cast, do you remember some of her behaviors? kinds of ways that she may be regulating or uh, uh, medicating or managing her rage and her shame
0: yeah it just seems like the rage of the this kind of aggressiveness would come out in in different aspects of her life so i think you mentioned she was um you know with different men um every you know weekend or and and was being kind of um thrown into these kind of situations or feeling like she was um and i guess rage would seep out in all directions i can't remember the specifics that you mentioned now but i mean it would come out i guess as aggression towards family members and friends and could be a lot lots of ways that the that the kind of rage would come out in um i'm just picturing this kind of self-perpetuating spiral almost yeah and well that's that's
1: where we're going yeah that's where we're going so what we're going to do is we're going to try to paint a picture to see how it becomes what i call a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah yeah so the beliefs of unworthiness trigger a sense of shame shame is too painful then comes the rage rage can't be directed outward because no one's listening so it gets directed inward there we have behaviors what kind of behaviors self-destructive behaviors Mm. truancy uh, medication, right. she's also self-medicating through drinking, binge drinking, overeating, numbing herself, You can't blame her. This is just the best way she's learned to cope with such intense emotions, has no outlet, no one's listening, no one's sitting at the coffee table saying, tell me how you feel, sweetheart, what can we do differently? Instead, what she has is constant abandonment, no outlet. So the only way that that, that emotion can be expressed is as self-directed. So she's self-sabotaging her career or her education. Then she also has this chronic pattern of getting in and into, into relations with the wrong men. So this then inspires the next link. When she's drunk and she gets in it and gets into things with the wrong men, only to find the next morning that they have discarded her, this is the next link of consequentiality. She's sending a message to these men that she's available and that she wants to be taken advantage of. And then it happens. She's broadcasting an unconscious message. She's putting herself in a trajectory when she goes out that night blitzed out of her mind. And that evening and that weekend of activity doesn't just stop there. It has a residue. It has a biofeedback. It's both broadcasting a message to others about how she should be treated and it's having a confirmation on her own self-belief. So let's do the other. What kind of message is it sending other pe- to other people?
0: Which part, sorry?
1: Her behaviors of m- m- her, man- her her managing herself with alcohol and then her um, or sleeping with other men that are really all not, not all that interested in having a relationship.
0: I guess it's just it, It's all of this is kind of bundling into. It's it. It's kind of going back to where it began, is what it seems.
1: Yeah. So put words to it. So where does it go? It, it, how do people learn? How does she unconsciously entrain people to treat her
0: the way that Without, she's the way that she was brought up being treated?
1: Yeah, without any respect or consideration.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? To be discarded.
0: Mm.
1: Right? To be to be discarded. Mm. To be undisrespected and to be rejected. Now, I'm not saying that she's conscious of this. What I'm saying is that the momentum of mind is carrying her in this trajectory because of prior imprinting. And then, rightfully so, you've seen how the, lo- the loop comes full circle to have a reinforcement, which is the way that she perceives these men leave her, she sees it. She doesn't see her own involvement in it. She sees herself as a victim of it. Mm-hmm. But it still has an implication on her own self-belief. When, they, when she constantly finds a man that abuses her and leaves her, what is, it, what is she saying? She's Not saying all the things yeah. that she learned in childhood, which is what you Just so re- rightfully, rightfully reinforces everything. Yeah, It's a complete reinforcement contingency. Now, the Buddha used this idea that the, there is a wagon wheel. And if you put a wagon wheel and trace it in, the, in a circle in wet mud, and you go around once, and you go around twice, and this heavy wagon wheel goes around a third time, Something happens each time with each repetition in the mud. It becomes more ingrained. And it becomes harder to escape the trajectory. Mm. And this is what samsara is. This is what the Buddhist notion of samsara, of ensnarement in one's own self-perpetuating, unconscious creation of a nightmare reality. She doesn't realize she's doing it. She doesn't see herself as complicitly involved. She sees herself as a haphazard victim of it. But that—that that, she's bound like a wagon wheel in a negative rut. And this is what the Buddha was talking about in terms of samsara is not a place. Samsara is a state of mind of being bound. And everybody listening right now has samsara. I'm not going to say they're in samsara, I'm going to say we have samsara, we experience samsara. As long as consciousness is in its default setting, it's asleep, it's being driven, it's being driven by past impulses, it's being driven by a worldview, which fires certain emotions, which are connected to certain behavioral actions, which become concomitant reactions that other people have with us, which then become self-fulfilling prophecies or reinforcement contingencies on our original belief systems. This is is what the Buddha described as samsara, and to which he suggested this three-pronged approach for the alleviation. How do you break the chains of samsara? Well, you need mindfulness or you need meditation, a stable mind then you need to change your world view. You have to clear the doors of perception. And how do you do that? You do that through virtuous action. So what this young girl at 19 ends up doing in therapy is taking responsibility for her samsara. The first and most important thing is that she feels safe, of course. There are all these preconditions to therapy. It doesn't matter what kind of therapy. You have to have a sense of safety. You have to have a sense of uh, a rapport. You have to have some trust that you're not alone. These are like the lever that makes therapy actually possible. Without them, there's no, there's no, there's no going forward into treatment. So you know we had to get to we had to get there. We had to survive a few of her late comings to therapy. Sometimes her own self-destructive tendencies that wound up in therapy. She was angry at me. She didn't want to come to therapy. She didn't want to. She didn't show up. She was doing all her self de- defeating behaviors. But when we finally got around to a sense of consistency in that. I was available, and I was interested in her, and I was listening to her, and I wasn't afraid of her, and I wasn't afraid of her anger, and I wasn't afraid of her emotions, and I wasn't, I was able to tolerate and actually hear her, her plight and her difficulty without batting an eyelash or judging her, or gaslighting her, condemning her, or, or bailing on her, then we've established the connection that then enables us to turn awareness around on itself so that she can claim responsibility for how this happens. Mindfulness meditation is awareness. It is about creating awareness. You and I meditated before we started this chat and I can see that you're just tracking what I'm saying and you're using attention to track it and you're processing in the meanwhile all of your own feelings and possibly your own responses. This is really important to slow down the apparatus. It's like life is moving at such a fast pace and the past is informing the present and moving into the future at such a fast pace without some attention we can't slow the frame by frame down what we're looking for is a gap we need a gap in the links between the links we need a gap between the links to break the cycle it's sometimes very very difficult to go right for the for the worldview because it's, it's like code. The human soul, I call them soul contracts or worldviews, beliefs. They're very, very subtle and they're very, very ancient and they're in a very, very uh, deep repository in the brain. Emotions are much easier to deal with. They're apparent. If, and the Buddha encouraged us to find the gap of opportunity between uh, emotions and actions. So imagine that wagon wheel coming around again. It goes past worldview. Suddenly shame is triggered. Then comes the rage. And we're coming around the mountain, and it's so easy to fall into self-defeating behavior. But if we have enough presence, and we can hold that rage for a couple of minutes, and this is where having an ally is really important, because... She might not on her own. It's like that part of her being that's able to tolerate these emotions is still very primitive. And so the therapist then extends their nervous system so that there's a sense of both people containing this emotion. It's almost like a mother or a parent lending her the nervous system so that she can survive the tumult and the upheaval of her own emotion and just resist the temptation to go down the railway track into action. So now we have the gap established between emotion and action. This is where karma theory is so important because karma theory suggests that what we do matters. It comes around. What goes around comes around. What goes around comes around. What goes around comes around. around. So, But if you have the gap which is made possible by awareness, and then you have an alternative, you are going to put that wagon wheel in a different direction, even if it's one degree. I love that analogy with a ship. If it starts out in the depth of the ocean and it just changes its orientation one degree, where it ends up 10 hours or 10 10 days from there is a huge, huge distance. That's a beautiful metaphor for karma theory. So, This happens in Alcoholics Anonymous. There is a substitution of action. When you feel the urge to drink because you're feeling angry or ashamed or sad, you substitute the action. You have to have presence before. You have to have enough emotional tolerance. But then you substitute the action. They say, go go to a meeting or call your sponsor. Talk about your feelings. Before you go and find that, you know, person that's going to disrespect you again over the weekend try to find some other you know other outlets for those emotions so we got her into an uh, a 12 step program called al anon which is a wonderful idea for anyone who comes from a dysfunctional family relationship where you might not be the addict yourself but you were surrounded by crazy erratic unavailable people that gaslit you and made you feel like you were the burden and that you were the problem this is something very common the thing about 12 step is it's very available and it's free you can go in any you know most modern cities you can find a group where you can go and talk about how you're feeling with people who know exactly what you're talking about and aren't going to shame you, and aren't going to reject you, and aren't going to gaslight you. They're going to go, I have that experience all the time. And if we sit here for the next hour and we share this, it will dissipate, and you won't have to go drinking tonight. You won't have to go replicate the dysfunctionality of your childhood.
0: I guess one thing that arises for me as you're sharing uh, this, Miles, is something you mentioned in the beginning of our chat around um where we were where we are on a collective level as opposed to maybe how it was back in the day um and then now kind of looking at what you mentioned about that extra um nervous system to kind of assist in that process you know they they seem to be kind of in in one way kind of at odds with each other because if it's like you know um you're doing everything you're stepping into doing everything for yourself in a way and i don't want to kind of twist what you're saying but um in a collective sense that's kind of where we're heading um it's not like the olden days where um although i think maybe it's still possible um it's just there's a lot more i guess barriers to entry or something in my perspective um the idea of kind of going and, and spending time in a monastery or going and, and and having some kind of a guru or um that kind of a thing Um, which could also be a psychotherapist but um you know i'm not going to go too much further in that path but i'm just kind of wondering yeah how that sits with this idea of because it does seem like you know help is definitely needed at times um and um, having having that kind of shared um as you put it um uh, nervous system yeah. Um, helps to kind of, you know, pur- purify our own one at the times where where it is quite difficult uh, at, the, at those little kind of opportunities um, for us to choose whether we want to go around the merry-go-round again or not.
1: Yeah, that's called co-regulation, by the way. Co-regulation is when you share your nervous system so that two two work better than one. Mm. And yes, I think that this is, you know, I'm a therapist that pretty much exclusively works with people in the spiritual world who have plenty of experience meditating and doing breath work and doing all the high-caliber techniques, Um, but but behind closed doors are very ashamed that they're still depressed and still anxious and have a lot of trauma. And because I am positioned in two worlds with a leg in spirituality and a leg in, in basically in trauma and psychology, I can bring... A point of view on both on both um on the division or the fracture between people's psyche this is this is what's called in in our world spiritual bypassing where people want transcendence and are using spiritual practices to escape trauma, to sidestep the wounds of childhood, to sidestep addictions. My work is to bring them together to see how they're complementary. And yes, there is this sort of belief that uh, the archetype of the lone spiritual warrior that is like in a loincloth in the, in the meditation cave in Himalayas, or the Ashtangi yogi who's on the yoga mat in, a, in Mysore, sort of solitarily going for enlightenment by themselves. But one thing that we definitely know from trauma research is that trauma is relational. So I spent a lot of time with the vignette because it's now an easy point for our reference. The wounds that she sustained were based on relational abandonment and relational abuse and and chastising and lack of availability and lack of presence. So there's no way to imagine that she could heal from a relational wound on her own. It doesn't make sense. And I've seen people spend 5, 10, 15, even 20 years trying to heal relational wounds in a with a solitary method. And it's never going to work. What, what, ends up having, what ends up having inevitably is that meditation and yoga and breath work are used as escape avenues not to feel the fragmented wounds of the past and to sort of anesthetize and to, uh, t- and, to, and to achieve some sort of bliss realm or some sort of openness or some sort of passive spaciousness, um, but it's only more denial. So relational wounds need better relations to heal. She needs somebody to be available to her for her anger. She needed to get angry at me and see that I still in, held her with unconditional positive regard, that I could tolerate her anger.
0: So you held a space of love for her?
1: You can call it love, unconditional positive, whatever, whatever word you want to put there. Yes, that she, she could fire her anger with me and know that there wouldn't be retaliation that it was acceptable, that these parts of herself were acceptable to me in order to make room for them to be acceptable to her so that she could get closer to them to reclaim what their actual origins and meaning are. So relational wounds require relationships. It's like if you get into a car accident and you break your... Ribs and your spine, and you finally recover, and you tell yourself, I'm never going to get into a car again. Is it a solution? Yeah, it's a solution. Is it a cure? No. No. If the horse throws you and you choose never to get on a horse again, you avoid ever getting hurt again, but you don't actually heal the wound. So fractures that happen in relationships require better relationships to heal. It's never going to happen on a meditation cushion with your mala beads breathing, you know, breathing nicely. (laughs) Yeah. So she needed someone to hear her. She needed someone to accept her. She needed to know that I wasn't ever going to make a move on her. She needed to know like all these things to build trust. Mm. And we are mirrors for each other. So she needed to see that I wasn't judging her, that I was holding her as a whole person, that I was interested just as much as her successes as I were in her failures, just as much as her anger, as her brokenness, as her victory. And suddenly what that's doing, the more that she can step into the gap, she can allow the anger to come up or the shame to come up, And tolerate it first with me and then eventually with with herself because she's internalized the, the capacity. And then she has a set of alternative pathways by the same mechanism that we got into the stuff, whether the same mechanism, the karmic momentum that we got into the negative spin cycle, the same karmic momentum of the new optionality provides a different reverberation and a different consequence with others setting a boundary, for example, and saying, no, I won't tolerate this, using your communication, finding better allies to lean on, they eventually mirror back to you healthy respect Mm. and unconditional love. If they do that, if that's the mirror, what does it then do about the worldview, the original worldview?
0: Sending a loving breeze of gratitude in your direction Thank you so much for sharing space with us here and now. And if you want some more information about our guest, you can head over to todaydreamer.com and check check out the episode section on the page. Um, Also, if you're someone that's interested in deepening your practice of presence, if you want to work together with someone to structure a spiritual practice, whether it's an existing one or a new one, If you're looking to build consistency, define your ambition and recalibrate your trajectory in a way that's more in line with wholeness and in a way that contributes and participates more fully in the emergent world story and it's blossoming, then feel free to get in touch because I'm taking on a small handful of one-on-one clients, spiritual friends, um, and I'd love to speak to you. If you did enjoy this episode and you felt like you got something out of it, feel free to share it with your community. And if you feel like there's anyone in particular that could benefit from the space shared today, uh, I would really appreciate if you'd pass it on to them. And I'm sure they would too. And yeah, uh, I'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you again, my friend, and be well.